0: This is A Word Fitly Spoken, by words about reading the scriptures, about preaching the scriptures, and about the mission on which the scripture sends all of us. We hear it, A Word Fitly Spoken, aimed to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in his holy word. I'm Willie Grills, here as always with Zelwyn Heidi. Today we're going to be talking about Christian eschatology. Zelwyn, how's it going?
1: It's going pretty well. Things are continuing to grow ever colder up here in the far north, but I hope that the weather is at least uh, tolerable down your way.
0: Yeah, uh, spring has sort of returned for a day or two. We had an inch or so of snow, then back to spring, fall still trying to get here. (laughs) The leaves are green, but they're all falling. However, we had enough dry weather that most of the harvesting can be done, so hallelujah for that.
1: Yes, praise God for that.
0: You know, the, the farmers are certainly all sleeping much more easily. And then the slaughterhouse she just keeps on going. They never they never close her down. So that's pretty much what's going on here in, in western Iowa. Yeah, I remember my
1: time in central Iowa in the midst of all of the, the corn and the pigs. So I, I have a I have a feel for what you were going through.
0: Yeah, yeah. I um it was interesting, uh, just the other day. I got behind a a tanker truck that was hauling nothing but pig's blood. And I said not for human consumption, and <laughs> trying to figure out what, where this is going to, and also trying to snap a picture of it while driving, and it didn't didn't work out well. But my bumper's still there, so.
1: <laughs> no, I don't. I don't remember encountering that, but that is a story worth telling. Yes.
0: Yeah, you know, it's a uh, rural life, even though I'm in the city, right? <laughs> this Thousands is big today, you know. You know, we hear it in this part of Iowa are thankful for the American appetite for bacon, sausage, and ham because it keeps the economy going.
1: Keeps you with a job too. but That's true.
0: And, and you know, discount pork products for me. You know, and that's and what it's exactly. about at the end of the day.
1: Exactly.
0: <laughs> so, yeah. So, eschatology. Now, this is something we want to get get this out of the way right at the beginning. This is not an exhaustive study of eschatology. This is going to be a survey. So we're going to go through it, talk about things really in general. And in future episodes, we'll pick apart things like dispensationalism, examine amillennialism, preterism, and those sorts of things on down the road. But we want to kind of establish some, some lay some groundwork here, lay a good foundation for future discussions. And so that's that's where we are. So just remember, also, too, if you do have questions and want us to clarify something or there's something you want to hear more about in the podcast... Come to Word Fitly Posting on Facebook, let us know, or send us an email, contact us through the website, wordfitlyspoken.org, or you can actually message just the Facebook page, Word Fitly Spoken. And also, if you use Twitter, I guess you can contact us via Twitter, right, Zellwin? I don't know how that thing works.
1: <laughs> I'm still figuring it all out, but yes, Twitter is also a viable option. Look, I am
0: not the 30-year-old boomer by any means, but I do not <laughs> understand Twitter. <laughs> anyway. So yeah, seriously. If you have a question, look us up. We'll be more than happy to answer those or, or cover things in future episodes. Or if you want to send any hate mail or spam, please direct it towards Zelwyn. <laughs> Thanks, friend. <laughs> that's all right. He's got he's got a pretty good filter. So so Zelwyn, what is eschatology? Well, eschatology,
1: in the most basic sense, is literally a study of the last things. I mean, that's what the word means. Of uh, the eschaton being the last, and ology being a word so a word about the last things which means we're we're talking about the end of the world. And I think the reason why that becomes so popular for people is because it's it's something that we we have no experience of that we you know it's still coming, it's in the future and we can only really take what the lord has said which honestly I mean there's there's only so much that's written in the bible about how the world will end. And I think it, it causes us to really s- speculate sometimes, and it just kind of makes us excited to say, hey, maybe we could figure this out, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's something where I think for a lot of Christians, they want to actively participate in that biblical story. And the end time studies are a way to do that. They sort of see themselves as living in the end times as being very much a part of something dynamic. Now, if we look at the Bible correctly, we would see that we don't need this focus on the end times in order to participate. Indeed, in the divine service, we are participating You know, in the life of the church. Indeed, in our vocations, we're participating. We are members of the kingdom of God and, and, and really working in that kingdom through ordinary things. But the mundane you know, at times becomes perhaps not as exciting. And I don't sure. think that that's necessarily the motivation for a lot of people because I think a lot of Christians simply aren't taught that, or it is at least, is an emphasized in a lot of preaching. One that we serve a living God, mm-hmm. who is active, and we do participate with Him. He He does rule and guide our lives. So even when things are normal, you get up, you eat cereal for breakfast, you go to work, come home, go to sleep, repeat. You know, you're still very much part of the kingdom of God and and God's active reign in all of creation, indeed of everything. Now, that's not emphasized a lot, and especially when it comes to worship it's it's sort of not emphasized that what are we receiving in worship, God's good gifts, but also you know we're in fellowship with our brothers and sisters, and God is active in His means, and that sort of thing. Sometimes, I think you know we can emphasize
1: the the nowness of of serving mm-hmm. the living God and everything that we don't actually take the end times very seriously
0: sure but but my point is is simply that that they're wanting to be a part of this in a more active way and don't know how, so they sort of see themselves living in this time of excitement, which is the end time.
1: Right. Okay. No. And then on the other side,
0: yep. you're absolutely right. Okay. No, I mean, that's absolutely that's absolutely the point. Yeah, some people want
1: to participate in something they consider to be exciting, but I think that we can so tame it down in, in an effort to emphasize the, the the present reality that we actually end up not talking about it at all or talking about it very little
0: yeah or yeah and we uh, sort of take these warnings of the lord jesus christ and make them into nothing right uh, because there are a lot of warnings and admonitions concerned with the end of days so yeah there's definitely a soft peddling of the end times too or we don't want to appear like like you know kind of the left behind thing and we don't but we don't want to like sensationalize <laughs> things right and so we avoid talking about it
1: uh, that's that's how it always goes though, isn't it, Willie? We always kind of backpedal because we don't want to look like somebody else.
0: Yeah, you know, we would if the wrong I, I do worry that if the wrong guy endorsed the Trinity, we might back away from it.
1: <laughs> you no, know, I yeah. I know exactly what you mean. I know yeah, exactly what you
0: mean. Reactionary the- theology. And then, you know, we 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 either find ourselves in the camp of some kind of Arians or or we end up, you know, endorsing popery. And we <laughs> ought not do that. So we don't want to be on either side there. On the wrong so, yeah, side of history. So. It, right. And then, you know, there's also just a genuine curiosity that people have. It is a great sure. mystery. Sure. We don't know when Jesus will return. We know the general details of how it's going to go down, but we don't really know what everything's going to look like. You know, what are the logistics of the great judgment? Do we all take a number and wait? You know, how does it how does it go down? <laughs> so all of these, these sort of machinations that people think about, and there's a lot to ponder there. And maybe we shouldn't think about heaven as a bureaucracy. That's not my point. Right. uh, right. It's it's just simply like, well, how does this all work? What is this great mystery that in the blink of an eye, all flesh is resurrected, and then immediately all flesh is judged? Right. Now, now that right there is probably why uh, some of us don't like talking about it, because we don't want to talk about judgment. Right. God's not going to judge us anyway, even though the plain words of Scripture say we will be. (laughs) You know, it gives me bad feels.
1: According to our words and according to our deeds as well.
0: Right, right.
1: Which I think is another reason why I think we get kind of nervous about it as Lutherans, at least, because we say Jesus took the judgment for us. And that's true. We are atoned for. We are justified through Jesus because of what he has done for us. But th- those works and those words are also going to be the evidence marshaled at the last
0: day to determine the state of our hearts. And, and there's still an account to give. that Those words about an account are given to... Christians and right. the non-believers alike it's it's you know you got to look at the audience there which is coming up in a couple of years a 16 part series on degrees of glory right? <laughs> but these are th- these are things that are affirmed in scripture and in the confessions this is not this is nothing foreign but we've right. so shied away from it and it is part of the reducing theology down to something that's digestible sure. and to something that's that's easily palatable there's a It's it's very interesting. There is a little bit of church growth in some of this because it's so much more palatable to ignore these things. Sure, and we, and we don't want to. We don't want people to re, to reject grace or to turn away from grace, and so we sometimes want to hide certain scriptures, which which I find to be a very interesting phenomenon in, in certain circles within modern Lutheranism.
1: Or even if we're not hiding them, it just doesn't really form any any significant part of our preaching.
0: Yeah. Or we just don't, plain just don't know what to do with them. Sure. There, there, that is the thing about the Bibles. Sometimes it's, it is easier just to speak in, there is a tendency to speak only in dogmatics, which still puts you a little closer to the scripture than speaking only in platitudes. But still, we want to come to where we can open the Bible and say, "This is, this is where this is found. This is why we believe this. Mm-hmm. This is why the confessions say this, because the Bible says this right here. Right. And as pastors, we're we're not allowed to soft pedal the word or to make it lukewarm, you know, to make it into like baby food or something like that. Although there is the analogy in scripture of milk versus meat. I understand that. It doesn't mean that immediately when you get a new believer, you come in and start throwing hard scriptures at them, and then they will leave. But it does say that there does come a time where you're going to have to to feed them meat, or you're going to have to have meat yourself, depending upon who's listening out there.
1: Well, if, I mean, if you're using the analogy of a plant, for example, and if you leave a plant in a hot box or in the greenhouse forever, that milk, so to speak, the plant is not going to be able to withstand the, the blasts of of being outside in in the full reality of what it means to be a plant. So there is mm-hmm. there is, in a sense, a time of growth and a time of being led. I don't want to say sheltered because that's not really the point, but yeah, a, a time basically that we have to, you have to take these things in order, but we right. can't, we can't just stunt our growth.
0: Well, it's like, it's putting down roots, you know, right. being grounded so that you're ready for more and more of what comes.
1: Well, because I think more and more of what comes is we have to deal with the reality and maybe this just to help move things along here, that there's a lot of crazies out there who say all kinds of silly yeah. things about the end times.
0: Yeah, and, and so you want to be prepared. It goes back again. We don't want to withhold the scripture in in, in, in any manner that is bad because the people need it. It right. is the sword after all. Right. So, yeah, there there are all kinds of crazy things. We just, it was it, a couple of years ago, we had to deal with John Hagee's four blood moons. <laughs> whatever that, whatever that was, the, the red moons were a sign of the end times. Didn't come to pass. I, I'm not, I'm unclear. What, and, and they're smarter now. They don't sit dates. You know, the right. big guys don't sit dates, but they kind of wink at you and go, yeah, it's probably going to be, you know, yeah, it's probably really,
1: going to be right here, right here. Well, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it could literally be insert the current year and output, you know, whatever the current lunatic is who's saying that the world's going to end this year.
0: Right. And it's basically newspaper in one hand, Bible in the other, and then we're going to go with it. And and it's pretty much only two sections or three sections, U.S. news, Israeli news, Haaretz or something like that, and then now Russian news. Now Russia. The old Gog and Magog thing, you know. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, yeah, only three sections or so the guy puts down the sports pages and decides to do a little bit of divining and see what the future holds with regard to biblical prophecy. And you've seen this. I mean, how Lindsay right. was predicting that the world was going to end in the eighties didn't happen. Right. I, I guess Reagan stopped it. Um, <laughs> you know, so. Well,
1: what was that? What was that movie? The seventh seal or something like that? Yeah, the seventh seal.
0: Uh, that was, I think, like Demi Moore, right? Was that Seventh Seal? <laughs>
1: something like that, yeah. And they ended uh, up seventh stopping sign.
0: the apocalypse. Yeah. Seventh, seventh Sign. Seventh Sign, yeah. <laughs> that is Demi Moore. Well, you also had the movie in the 90s. A lot of people, uh, I think Seventh Signs, like 1988. But okay. I think it's early 90s. You have a movie called The Rapture, which sounds like a Dove Award-winning film or something. But it's actually <laughs> a secular film. And sort of the first quarter of the movie is this lady that, you know, very promiscuous, kind of wild, into some false religions and things like that. And the plot twist is that the rapture is actually real. And it's really the only movie, a secular movie, I've ever seen that actually takes the rapture premise seriously. Now, we wouldn't affirm that, but at least it's... we, We don't affirm the rapture, but we... Right, I, I affirm. It's interesting when a movie takes it seriously as well, I'm especially saying. a secular one. Yeah, a secular one. Yeah, because Kirk Cameron can star in something, and I know what's <laughs> going to happen. Guys on a plane, it's not going to be good. Don't let Kirk Cameron be on the plane as the at least not as the pilot.
1: It's it's invariably <laughs> the pilot that gets raptured too. So. Yeah, exactly. So this is also nothing new in terms of church history either. I mean, I can think of you know any number of date setters throughout history. The only one that's really coming to mind at the moment would be like Bangle, as yeah. brilliant as he was, you know, actually attempting to set the, the date of, of the second coming of Christ.
0: Right. And you do have the Millerites, which I am going to talk about a little bit later. The Millerites and Millerism. Right. Set a couple of dates. Or actually, I think Miller actually sets a general date, but we'll come back to that toward a little bit later in the podcast. Oh. But yeah, you do have some famous date setters and really going all the way back because I believe there was a wildly held church view at the turn of the, you know, going into the year 1000. You know, right, uh, people were expecting, and of course, in the year 2000, which many listeners here would have been familiar with, a lot of people were freaking out. You know, yep, a lot yep. of sh- a lot of shotgun shells and filling up their bathtubs on New Year's Eve that year.
1: Well, and there was there was also the one. This is probably getting a little bit more esoteric, but during the time of the the Great Councils, so about the you know the 400s, the 500s, the way that the the Romans or the Byzantines counted their years, they thought they were approaching the year 6000. That's and right. So they- yeah. There was a great big hullabaloo about that, too. So, yeah, this has literally been an ongoing theme throughout all of
0: church history. And one, albeit with a sincere motive for many Christians. Right. Now, there have been insincere people who have profited from it, but will continue to. I'm trying to decide how conspiratorial I want to get when we start getting into some of the reference <laughs> Bibles and, and certain dispensational things later on. You can you can stop me, or I'll direct you to Infowars.com for some super male vitality or something. but. <laughs> you know it does get it gets a little kooky when you start to look at this and all of the political things going on behind the scenes, the business things going on behind the scenes. It's all very fascinating stuff, and you know we usually only go about an hour or so, and so you can't get into all this but folks, once you start digging into this, you'll see, man, what a business there is in the end time, you know the wool that's been pulled over the eyes of a lot of people in America at this point, if you don't hold you know some kind of kooky views. On the end times, they look at you like you're the crazy guy. Right. To just be like, well, I'm an all millennialist and I believe Jesus will show up and then this will happen. And right. talks about the church age and, and you know, an indefinite millennium, that kind of thing. It's like, well, that's, who cares about that?
1: Well, I think, I think your hucksters are probably preying on the real fear that sometimes people can have about these things, too, to really yeah. get them to be afraid of the end of days. Which we shouldn't be.
0: Yeah, and I'm not calling a lot of these big guys hucksters. I think they actually believe it. And of course, I can't judge their hearts. I mean, they make money sure. off of it. But you know, you look at a guy like a Hagee or a Tim LaHaye, who I believe has died uh, a few years back. But okay. Hagee's still going. Lindsey's still going. I don't know if Jack Van Empie really gets into it as much, but he's certainly part of that same club. You know, these guys. I think these guys actually do believe this because sure. they've been they've been trained in this, and they're and they're very sincere about it. Nevertheless. Sincerity does not equal piety. Sincerity doesn't equal truth, and oftentimes the best of intentions will still lead people down bad paths, and a path towards doubt and damnation. And we don't want to do that.
1: This kind of just goes to show you how many there's been. But what was the name of that dude a few years ago in California? Set a date a couple of times and then repented. Yeah, on the, uh,
0: and he was a like a reformed, like a Presbyterian guy of what was that guy's name? But they were literally setting dates. Yeah, down to the day kind of a thing.
1: But what I what I appreciated about him, even though he was crazy and, you know, leading people astray, is that after the second failure, he actually said, I was wrong. Now, the damage was yes. still done, but I think that at least says something about the intentions of at least, you know, probably a lot of these guys, even if they are, like you said, leading people astray.
0: And I wish I could think of that guy's name, but it's probably best if we don't Google him anyway. Right. So, all right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to start digging into some non-Christian views for a little while. Then we're going to take a look at the major eschatological approaches within Christianity. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoke. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. The mission of Word Fitly Spoken is to put the Word of God at the center of all of life. To find out more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org. we are back. You are listening to Word Fitly, Willie Grills and Zell and Heidi talking about the end of days. A fun subject for all, you know, no trepidation there. Looking forward to that great and awful day when the Lord will return. However, as Christians, we do have a hope and we also look forward to that glorious day. However, sadly, there are many in the world who are not Christians and they too anticipate some sort of end times scenario. So before we start unpacking specifically Christian views, I want to take a little bit of time to look at other religions and how they see the end times. So, Zelan, should we start with uh, Judaism first, you think? Go chronologically? A little chronologically. I think it might be the, the easiest way
1: to talk about it. I think with Judaism, you're basically, listeners might be familiar already, obviously, well, they should be familiar already with the concept of the Messiah. And so I think um, correct me if you want to. If you want to counter signal me on this, Willie, that Judaism would kind of look for a future kingdom to come under the reign of Messiah. Yeah, when,
0: when talking about you know Judaism, I'll always echo you there that uh, they're looking forward to that promised Messiah.
1: Which, of course, you would say is a false hope because Messiah has already come in Jesus Christ.
0: So yeah, so that especially yeah in biblical times, that's what you have. They're looking forward to the Messiah who is to come the messiah would have a specific set of prophecies to fulfill and of course you have all even even in the time of the bible you have several different schools within Judaism modern Judaism is interesting because you will have a faction who is still looking forward to this messiah is anticipating another temple being built both zionist and non-zionist Jews who anticipate a future with a temple sacrifices returning and an earthly conquering Messiah. Is it fair to say that in traditional Judaism the Messiah is a political ruler as well as something of a spiritual guide?
1: Oh, of course. I mean you, you see that even in the expectations of like the apostles, you know, you know, will yep. you come and establish the kingdom at this time? They
0: they definitely want an earthly kind of political figure. Even a warlord um, in certain conceptions. Even a warlord. And you see men come up before and after Jesus claiming to be the Messiah, Mm -hmm. and they are always brought low. This conception
1: of a political figure of one who is in control always makes their hope this worldly, which is, I mean, it is a shame, really, because our hope is not this worldly. Our hope is in Jesus, who is himself a conquering king. Yes, he absolutely is. But he is the one who conquers all things and not just taking over a particular territory.
0: Right, right. And as we start a little bit later to talk about certain forms of Christian eschatology, you do start to see an intersection between Judaism and Christianity. Right. But we'll save that. You know, No spoilers. We're, we're getting there. <laughs> so and then you also have just your typical secular Jew who may or may not even believe in in a god, but still would attend temple. And they're probably not holding out much hope of resurrection. Right, you know, let alone a Messiah or something like that. So the next is going to be Islam. You know, Islam they have their if if I remember correctly, it's like their Yam, like Yam Adin. You know, that's the Day of Judgment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I my I don't speak Arabic, so I probably said it wrong, but that's that's how <laughs> I read it back in the day. You know, something, but Day of Judgments uh, that is, is what that translates to. So, you know, they're looking forward to a Day of Judgment and a Day of Resurrection that's known only to God. No prophet can bring it forward, even Muhammad. And then they do have this great judgment and, and sort of an equivalent to hell that people right. can be sent to.
1: They believe Jesus will return, but he's going to return to basically say Muhammad got it right. Yeah. There's no hope in the Islamic system.
0: Judgment's really arbitrary. Yeah, because
1: yeah, Allah is all, is bound to no one. He's, I mean, even, even if you were the, the most perfect Muslim, you know, most perfect, obedient servant, Allah could still condemn you because he's not hes not beholden to anybody. He's absolutely set apart.
0: Yeah, apart from questions of law or justice, which is certainly in contrast with the one true God, the God of the Bible, right the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the one, you know, Christianity and the cross depend upon justice. Now, apologies to my Eastern friends, but, you know, we very much look at it that way. A holy God, his wrath is appeased in the holy obedience of Jesus Christ. And that is how Jesus is able to make atonement for us. And that is how his righteousness is imputed to us. Or no, that is why, because when his righteousness is imputed to us, we are judged for his sake. Right. If you don't have the atonement, okay, and if you don't have the cross, and if you don't believe in that, you might as well go be a Muslim or you can go be a universalist. But you can't call yourself a Christian. Right. Without the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. And I know it's popular in vogue sometimes, you know, to kind of to kind of roll our eyes at at, you know, atonement theories and that sort of thing, but the fact is if we if we lose it, we've lost the whole thing. And so we might as well just go on living like pagans if we don't believe that Christ has (laughs) has lived and died for us. Because there's no hope without it. Sorry, folks, I'm a Christian. I have digressed.
1: Good digression, though.
0: Yeah. So Allah is not the God of the Bible. Indeed, any religion that does not recognize Jesus as God does not confess the God of the Bible. Right?
1: Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if... if I was getting it, there was a very <laughs> pregnant pause there. I was worried. <laughs> I mean, who do you say that he is? I mean, you have to answer that question if you're going to be a Christian. And it can't be just a generic, you know, a, a great guy, because that's that's not good enough. Right, we have to confess him for who he is, not just who we
0: want him to be, right, and how he has revealed himself, so yeah, so but back to Islam, so yeah, you you just had this sort of arbitrary thing, you could have followed all of the pillars of Islam, you know, been a great Muslim, did all of your tithings and alms and everything, and still him to scope. I don't have to give you anything, you're done now, right. what is true in Christianity? yeah, we are not deserving of anything, right. but praise be to God, Jesus Christ is. And so, but it, but it's totally different because the true God looks at his law and looks at justice and measures out justice correctly. There is no justice in the Islamic conception. I mean, why would you put it fiat? I mean, arbitrary is the best word I can think of.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I was getting at, too, because he is so, utter, uh, Allah is so utterly different and so utterly separated from this world that nothing is, that, you know, nothing influences him. That's why they consider it foolish for him to for us to say that God the Son exists, because they say Allah can have no Son. Right. Because he is so set apart like that, nothing can influence the way he does things.
0: Right. If and they'll they, pay they'll pay lip service to mercy and that sort of thing, depending upon which school of Islam we're talking right. about here. But anyway, so back to the another end times thing. You do have the resurrection, but they, they disagree, you know, as to what that's going to look like. You know, is it a Is it a new body? Is it the same body you have? So you kind of come back the way you were before you died. It's kind of like the waiting room at Beetlejuice or something. (laughs) You know, or you get like a second invisible body. Many different schools, so many different views. And again, folks, we're just speaking. We're painting with broad brushes here because that's just the way it is with, you know, a survey episode. Sure. So, yeah, so that's enough on Islam. And then I kind of want to focus on the neo-pagans for a little bit. You know the the, the new Odin worshippers.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, because you have you have the concepts, especially I suppose with Marvel comics and like bringing some of these things in. The whole notion of Ragnarok, the Twilight of the Gods, the whole idea in the the Norse system that there will be a great battle at the end of days, which is very fitting for a warrior culture, I suppose. At which, like uh, Odin, for example, will be devoured by the wolf Fenrir. And basically, some of the gods aren't going to make it through, but some will, and the world will be deluged in water and finally reborn. But the problem with neo-paganism is, is because it really ends up being kind of a very selective LARPing.
0: <laughs> right. It's like you get the flashy haircut, you get a Valhalla tattoo or Thor's hammer, and then all right. of a sudden you're, you're the edgy neo-pagan guy. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and so you end up. You're saying like, well, I don't have to believe any of it. I just, you know, got upset because somebody told me to do something once, and maybe that's not very charitable. <laughs>
0: well, it, it is funny, and and you see them more and more, especially online, where they where they're they use violent rhetoric to try to contrast themselves with Jesus. You know, right. Jesus says Jesus was meek and says to forgive, but Thor and Odin and the others, you know, they say to fight. So we fight and attack, and it's like, yeah. Yeah, tell, yeah. Come back and tell me about your warriors, and I'll, and I'll throw a crusader. I'll, I'll show you that. Even more so, I'll, I'll show you a, a Scottish covenanter. If you really want to, if you really want to play this game, that Christians don't ever fight. Right. If, if look at the entire history of the British Isles. You don't even have to go to the Crusades. You know, and that's on both sides. You know, they talk about
1: how Christianity being so weak and paganism being so strong. Which one's still here, friend? Exactly. Which one has Neo stuck yeah. in front of it?
0: <laughs> and since we're talking about the end of times, I guess you never got to the end of the book. It's not good news for you when he comes with the sword. So, it, yeah, it doesn't go well for them. And, and it's really kind of funny because we do have this image of the battle of the end times. And that's how we describe it. But it's not even a battle. It's right. over when Jesus shows up. And so all the false gods, which are really demons, they will bend the knee. And indeed, they already have bent the knee. But nevertheless, it is interesting because the neo-pagans, there's kind of a mix. Like you say, it's the LARPers. And then you seem to have some guys that are actually believing in this and praying to trees and such. Right. And, you know, you've got Wicca, which is a 1950s and 60s answer to witchcraft. See, also Scooby-Doo and Sabrina. And so, but but yeah, that all comes back up, and 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 this neo paganism has its own unique view of the end times, and with the Norse guys, it's basically there will be a giant war, and they for some reason think they're going to be a part of that, you know, or something, or that yeah, they'll be probably, able to stand. Yeah. It's it's interesting. It's like the preppers. You see, nothing against prepping at all, but the <laughs> it's like the idea that like you're going to prep, but you're not actually going to do any cardio. <laughs> So you see a lot of that with the Odin guys, you know, they put their fedora on with the Thor wings and then, you know, go about posting on Reddit. Sorry, I shouldn't pick. Sorry, Sorry, neo-pagans. Not sorry. Not sorry. But (laughs) But anyway, but you got to laugh at this sometimes because Boniface, right? You either laugh at it or you literally cut down their holy places and it's good. And now the formerly... Pagan lands have been thoroughly Christianized. Well, I mean, I
1: suppose you could say they're slipping nowadays. They're, they're
0: slipping that's... now, but that's because the church has shirked her duty. But right. God did see fit to extend his hand of mercy to them for several centuries. But but this is a pattern you do see. You know, it happens in the Bible. Jerusalem destroyed for the rejection of Jesus. And and so you'll see something similar happen in Islam, too, I have no doubt. And you certainly, we certainly saw it categorically with the pagans. In both the Scandinavian lands and also in the Celtic lands, and in, and in Rome, and you know we talked about this quite a bit in um, some of our church council episodes. You see that develop more and more. So anyway, uh, we should move. We should move along here. We've we've got we've got the baseball bats out right now. <laughs> but let's let's take a look at the three major Christian approaches to eschatology. And that's going to be futurism, preterism, and historicism. Zellman, what's a good definition of futurism? Now that we're
1: actually on the Christian end of things. Yeah, sorry,
0: yeah, actually should clarify. <laughs> We're moving to Christianity. We won't be coming back. We'll, we'll touch on Judaism in a little bit, but we're not going to be going back to anything else. So futurism. Okay, so futurism.
1: I mean, basically, the way these three approaches come to the question of eschatology is, when do the prophecies of Scripture come to pass? Yeah. That's the that's the basic thing tying them all together. Futurism is going to say they are all yet to come. All of them are still in the future, all of them have not yet happened. We are still looking for these things to come to pass. I'll just pick up the other ones just for the sake of getting them all out there then. Preterism is the idea that everything has happened either mostly in the past or entirely in the past. And we'll talk about that when we just dis- define preterism in a little bit here. And historicism is kind of more of a, we're somewhere in the middle of things, kind of an in medius res approach to eschatology, that some of the prophecies have come to pass, but some are still going to come to pass. And so we're somewhere in the middle. I mean, would right. you say that's a fair? Yeah, that's
0: that's fair. Yeah. So let's, let's unpack them then a little further. So futurism then is going to be, what we were talking about at the very beginning of the episode, kind of the sensationalized newspaper approach where you're sort of looking for everything to happen in the future. It's just like what it sounds. Now they're Mm -hmm. going to, they're going to obviously concede that the prophecies about, you know, Christ's birth Mm -hmm. and life and those sorts of things are fulfilled. Of course. But with regard to the end times, it's, it's yet to come. So, that's why they're looking at you know reports on credit cards or cashless transactions you know is this the mark of the bees that's why they'll they'll look at an Apache attack helicopter and wonder if this is the locust and revelation and <laughs> that kind of thing and those are sincere explanations that we hear among certain right. groups all the time and and so they're they're looking for everything in the near future and that's the trick right. they're not necessarily looking for it a hundred years in advance, they're actually expecting it to happen any day, as, you know, you should expect Jesus to return any day. But for them, then they have to sort of read the tea leaves of the news and, and try to really interpret Revelation, mostly Revelation and Daniel right, uh, through the ends. And so, you know, I imagine that would be difficult. I mean, it, it's stressful enough watching the news anyway, but, you know, to try to divine it in such a way is difficult and I, and I suppose that's why some men have built industries around that.
1: Well, and I think I think especially and that maybe we'll kind of get into this a little bit more as we talk about pre-millennial kind of positions. I think especially since the foundation of the Israeli state that's really kind of kicked all of this into overdrive. Yep. And they really tend to think now, okay, it must be eminent because certain things are happening that seem to be in line with what God has promised.
0: Right, right. And
1: so it really is a a certain way of looking at God's promises and believing that many of them have yet to be fulfilled.
0: Sure. So then moving on then to preterism, now we have two times. We have partial preterism and full preterism. So think of it this way. Everything that Jesus said would come to pass in history already happened by the year 70, AD 70. Including the second coming. Including the second coming. So so that's a full preterist. A partial preterist will say almost everything. Right. So the, they still believe that AD 70 is significant, and it is. Of course. But they'll pretty much say everything happened up until the second coming. We're still waiting on that and what that looks like. So a, a preterist is, is going to say uh, all those prophecies about the end days, the great judgment, everything has, has come to pass. And they have a couple different ways of explaining it. But basically it's that the destruction of Jerusalem, specifically the, the destruction of the temple was the great judgment and was the second coming. Sure. Now Jesus does prophesy that as a judgment for rejecting right. him. So they are correct there. But, you know, to say that that is the great and awful day of, of the last judgment is is a little bit of a stretch. Now, why do they do this? Because they see Revelation as talking about things that were relevant to and only relevant for the original audience. So that th- basically Revelation was written before AD 70, or, be- or before Jerusalem fell, more specifically, and that that is what Revelation is warning about. This is what's going to come. Or it's a coded text about the fall of Jerusalem that may have already occurred. There, that's another preterist view, too. That's pretty foreign to a lot of people, although I think for a while their preterism was becoming a little bit more popular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So basically, yeah, it's the prophecies of Jesus are fulfilled during his time, during his ministry, and then immediately after, or almost immediately after.
1: And I, I think we can find some affinity with partial preterism.
0: Yeah, yeah, I don't think that that, yeah, it doesn't necessarily lend itself to heresy quite like full preterism would. Right. You
1: would find very few people who actually defend a full preterist view.
0: Right. But to look at Revelation and say, this is primarily about the siege of Jerusalem, you can certainly see why that's, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, you can see why that would be a plausible reading. Because
1: it it certainly has, I think this is something that we have to remember about all prophecy. Uh, Prophecy has to mean something to the one giving it also.
0: Yeah, for the most part, yeah.
1: There are there are rare exceptions like I know Caiaphas prophesies without knowing what he's talking about and so it does happen from time to time. But if you uh, the prophecy that has to come also has to bring comfort to the people who first hear the message as well. So yeah. I, I think one of the great dangers then of a fully futurist kind of view is to make it sound like well John didn't know what he was talking about or he he could have no idea.
0: You know what I mean? Yeah, and so. So there's that. Then we come to kind of the Goldilocks option, which is going to be really where we more or less fall as Lutherans. And, you know, unless there's some, now there's probably some, well, we know there's some Lutherans out there that kind of go a little astray on eschatology. But we heard a word fitly spoken, <laughs> we're also going to fall into the historicist belief. Right. And And again, that's basically saying there's a fulfillment, there's an immediate fulfillment sometimes. Prophecies have sort of been gradually fulfilled throughout history. I mean you see prophecies fulfilled in the text of the New Testament, you know, when Jesus performs the miracles for example, his birth would be an example of a prophecy that was foretold and has already been fulfilled. Right. And then, you know, you look you can also look at the end times prophecies and see yeah, there's also a fulfillment an immediate fulfillment in the time that it's written or the time that the events occur.
1: Right. Well, and I, know, and I know amillennialism or a historic kind of historicist kind of position tends to view these things in terms of being just kind of generally descriptive of the times. And so I know a lot of Lutherans shy away from identifying certain events with specific prophecies because we say, oh, well, that's just date setting, the kind of thing we want to avoid. And so I think the historicist view kind of sees Revelation more as a a generally descriptive
0: Sure. Does that make sense, or do you yeah. want to counter-argue on no, that? No, I think that no, I think that's that's absolutely fair. Okay. So, so yeah, so that's that's the three main ones: totally in the future, totally in the past, and yes and no. And that's <laughs> and so that that's where we go. So on the other side of the break, we're going to take a look at some major theological positions within Christianity. So for all of you who've been waiting, premillennialism, amillennialism, a couple more up our sleeves to talk about when we come back here on Word Fitly. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all them that trust in Him. The book that sits on your shelf, The One Gathering Dust, Word Fitly Spoken, asks you to once again take up and read. Hear the words of the only wise God and be saved. We'll be right back. are back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken, Willie Grill, Zelwin Heidi talking about eschatology. So now let's just take a look at a few of the main theological positions within Christendom here. So the first one we're going to talk about is premillennialism. So Zelwyn, what is premillennialism?
1: Well, I think if we're going to talk about premillennialism, I mean, first of all, of course, it's a futurist approach. I mean, it kind of holds okay. that that everything is still coming. But premillennialism is not quite so easy to define because there's really two different kinds.
0: Yep. So you got your historic and your dispensational premillennialism.
1: All of these positions, you know, the millennial in premillennial, and nonmillennial, postmillennial, is talking about the idea of a thousand-year reign, which, of course, is the language used in Revelation. Is that chapter 20, 21, somewhere in there? To talk about, you know, Jesus reigning for a thousand years. And so the question is, is what does this thousand years mean? A premillennialist position has always held that Jesus will come back and that will begin the thousand year reign. Historically it was just that simple. When the last day would come, Jesus would come, he would begin the millennium, and then it would just go on. And then of course at the end of the millennium, I don't remember what is historic what did historic pre-millennium
0: believe came at the end? Then you have a great falling away, the great war, then the great okay. judgment. And then, then, then the in the, the eternal kingdom. Yeah. So that the great judgment does not happen until after that reign. Now, it gets complicated because some premillennialists are going to say no. The the tribulate, you know, the so you'll have a tribulation, and then Jesus will come at the end of that, but then you'll have another falling away. So basically, you have the millennium as a thousand-year age of peace. So he returns prior to the inauguration of that millennialism. So that's where the pre-comes from. Even in historic premillennialism? Even in, his, even in historic premillennialism, Jesus will return prior to the inauguration of the millennium. Well, yes. So that's, but the I mean, big the, that's the big one, yeah.
1: The tribulation is is a is a feature in, in historic premillennialism. Well,
0: yeah, so, okay. but, but it's such a loaded word now. So I'm talking about a great time of persecution for the church. Oh, so that, that, that all happens. Then Jesus comes and the kingdom is inaugurated. Depending on what scheme you're in. At the end of that thousand years, because in premillennialism it generally is a literal thousand years, then right. you know there could be another falling away, and then comes the great judgment.
1: We should say here it's called historic premillennialism because this was an idea that came okay. in very early in church history. Yeah.
0: So so but but keep this in mind then that inauguration of the kingdom in the premillennial view is not the second coming.
1: Okay. Okay, yeah. so
0: so you end up with basically three comings. The initial advent, the establishment of the kingdom, and then the second coming and judgment. Okay, I got gotcha. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I suppose it's it's kind of an easy one to to kind of realize why it came up so early in church history is because obviously prior to the establishment of Christianity by Constantine, which we talked about in the episode in Nicaea, Christianity was gen- was generally persecuted, and so it would be very natural to say hey, this must be that time right before the beginning of yeah. the kingdom.
0: And, and I guess because it gets so murky with these definitions sometimes, especially early on, the best way, the, the most succinct way to explain historic premillennialism is just that there is a physical kingdom that lasts for a thousand years prior to the eternal state. Right. And then all these different views in between, but that's going to be historic premillennial. So, so you have someone like, say, Francis Schaeffer, who, for most of his life, was a historic premillennialist. Sure. I don't know if he ever rejected that of, in favor of all millennialism later, but you know, so so historic premillennialism is not the same thing as dispensational premillennialism because you do have some church fathers that seem to hold to a historic premillennial view. Right. And with the historic premillennial view, I think even if it
1: is still kind of got some weirdness around it, like we're trying to figure out specific details. One of the great gulfs that separates it from dis- dispensationalism, premillennialism, is that there is a lot more going on with dispensationalism. Like there's a this is where mm-hmm. we get the, the date setting. This is where we get the, you know, yeah. what event. So,
0: so we what? might as well talk about that now. So what would dispensationalism be? Dispensationalism
1: as a system or as an as 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 eschatology? Yeah, as a system. Here we go on onto another rant. Dispensationalism as a system is the idea that God has changed the way that he interacts with humanity throughout history. And the reason why I'm trying to be very careful about this is because we do have the notions of the beginning of specific covenants in the Bible, like, you know, the, the mosaic, the... Adamic the the Noahic and all that sort of thing so there is a sense in which God does reveal more through time but at the same time dispensationalism says no that was actually an entirely different way that God saved people in that particular dispensation right is that is that fair or do you want to add to that
0: no that that's fair because that's you know I think that they'll sometimes reject a lot of them will reject that the idea that people were saved differently, but nevertheless, it is the logical outcome of dispensationalism that's kind of at the heart of it that Israel as a physical nation is sort of the interpretive key right, and so everything's moving towards the end time salvation of israel that's that's why in dispensationalism, you have the rapture the rapture has to happen. So, you know, basically plan B, the church is gone, or even even the believing Jews, so that the Jews may come to faith again. And and a lot of it it hinges upon that. But yeah, you really do have, in dispensationalism, this idea that in the Mosaic Covenant, you were saved by grace and works. But in the New Covenant, you are saved by grace alone, which we would absolutely reject.
1: Absolutely, yes.
0: Jew or Gentile, you are saved purely through Jesus Christ. Apart from works, you know, not, not by blood and not by obedience to the law and certainly not to, to ritual law or moral law for that matter. But I'm just saying work polycotton blends and you may eat shrimp and ham <laughs> because, that, yes. you know, because Jesus Christ has suffered and died.
1: With this, too, I mean, dispensationalism, we are in, I suppose, what would they, would they consider, what, the sixth dispensation? Yeah. Generally? And-
0: Yes. And, and so the dispensational is, the dispensations are sometimes a little bit different from the covenants. So they don't actually line up one to one always. Because okay. basically right now, for say somebody like Hagee or, or some of the other ones that espouse sort of a more extreme form, which says that the Jews today are saved by being good Jews. But then there's this other option where you could be a Christian. You know, it can be. You know, you're made a Christian, but and then you're saved by faith in Jesus. And I've heard that with my own ears. Right. Uh, that to say that that the Jews must accept Christ is somehow a lie. I sat in on a Bible study once with a guy who fancied himself a big time dispensationalist, a Christian who wanted to see the temple rebuilt so that animal sacrifice for remission of sins may return, despite the fact that Jesus Christ has already made satisfaction. And in truth, any animal sacrifice in the temple is made valid only looking forward toward Jesus Christ and for the sake of Jesus Christ, because of what right. it typifies. Right. Salvation of the you know, the life is in the blood and ultimately where is our life found, but in the blood of Jesus. Anyway, so I said, and I'm listening to this guy talk and, and he says clearly, the question is asked, well, what about people who say That the church is one, you know, that there's no Jew nor Greek, and that everybody is saved apart from the works of the law, and that you can't be saved, you know, that the Jews are not saved, can't be saved just by living as faithful Jews. And this man said, I would say that is a damnable lie from hell. That moment when you condemn literally (laughs) St. Paul. Exactly. (laughs) And I remember, like it was like I was a young man at the time. You know, I I I went from like age seventeen to age sixty seven. Just pretty much, that's how I aged. So back, (laughs) there was no in between for me. I just went straight from boom to boom. You know, I went straight Uh, from I went straight from rowdy teen to AARP. And I think (laughs) that that was probably the moment that happened. Uh, Because (laughs) button in reverse or something, right? Right? Because I remember hearing this, and I just like. You know, you hear something and you go, no, he didn't say that. No. (laughs) Let's clarify. And so, yeah, it basically became they're saved because they're Jews. And the man elaborated. Like Romans 11 talks about the hardening of the Jews. Well, they can't be damned because their hearts are hardened and that would be unjust. Well, it says their hearts are hardened because of unbelief. Yeah, but it would still be unjust because salvation belongs to the Jews or salvation is of the Jews. You know, talk about twisting scripture. And then so now... (laughs) So now it's just this whole scheme and I thought no, it can't be. And then you start looking at some more modern books, especially ones especially in times related books that are also focused on politics and you see this actually repeated. So this wasn't just one fluke from from one crazy guy. Hmm. This this was you know, this was pretty common in some very prominent teachers.
1: I mean it, it's literally Using Paul to make your point, saying Paul is a damnable lie. I mean, pick one. Which yep. one are you going to do? I didn't do know here?
0: what apostasy looked like, and then I did. <laughs> and and when you're confronted with something like that, you just can't. I mean, what do you do? Uh, I think
1: you can only do what I'm basically doing right now, which tearing is just... the
0: pillars down and bringing the ceiling <laughs> crashing down on everybody. Well, or... That's that's one option. Yes, <laughs> the Samson approach. So right. But yeah, you're just you're just flabbergasted with this. We harp on this kind of thing, and it sounds like we're just nitpicking, but that, here's, here's a clear-cut case where doctrine to where you know you're rejecting of the biblical doctrines leads to damnation. Sure. It leads to like if you, be- if you do not believe that there is salvation by none other than Jesus Christ, and, and, and I mean an explicit faith in Jesus Christ. You know, not in just some sense where you know they might have some scheme around it where they can say, "Well, see, Jesus died for them," you know. But he, so even though they don't believe, He died for them, so they're in. That's not how that works. We do need faith.
1: I mean, that was literally <laughs> Paul's whole point in Romans.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's no way to read. There's no way to read these doc the doctrines of these teachers into Romans, and and it is dangerous. See, we focus a lot of times on the sensational, like the rapture, and go they're reading those verses wrong and they are you know and so we want to focus on the rapture and make fun of like cheesy rapture movies and things like that but the real danger is in the soteriology the real danger is in the doctrine of how one is saved right that's what we really want to watch out for
1: well I mean if if you're going to be honest here like you said earlier I mean Israel is really the interpretive key exactly
0: and if, yeah.
1: if Israel is the interpretive key of, of dispensational premillennialism then that's going to color how you understand every other verse. Because if you're con- if you're convinced that Israel is going to be saved regardless, you're going to have to figure out how that works into all of these. Well, yeah, you know, we would consider rather clear verses.
0: Yeah, and you and you hit on it earlier. The Six Day War is really what kicked off the modern dispensationalist. Now, historic dispensationalism is going to use Israel as that key, but they're not really going to go as far as to say that they don't need faith or something like that. I I do think that even in Darby, who is the father of dispensationalism, you're going to see that the church is raptured so that Israel would come to faith. Sure. Which I think, which is an error, but it's certainly more palatable than they don't need Jesus. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Now, granted, not again, not every dispensationalist is going to say this, but some very significant ones are, and some very prominent ones do affirm this, so we do need to be aware of it. So, anyway, but back to the end times thing, they're part of the premillennial system, and so they have this concept of a great tribulation that comes, great persecution of the church. At the end of that time, Jesus comes and inaugurates the millennial kingdom, a literal thousand-year reign of peace on earth, and then you'll have the great war. Now, until you're another dispensationalist who says, well, no, actually the rapture happens... Not before all this. The rapture happens in the middle of the tribulation or before the tribulation or after, you know, just before the kingdom. So when you come to the rapture, it gets a little confusing. But the basic idea is period of great tribulation, golden age, judgment.
1: And dispensationalism being very, at least in the modern sense, very particular on a often very literalistic interpretation of the prophecies. And so you get like the, the Left Behind series, which was very popular. Gosh, it's going on what? 20 years now. Yeah. Been that long. <laughs> Basically saying that everything was going to happen exactly as it was predicted. Although they got a little, they did take some liberties. I mean, yeah. with Ray and Jenkins and all that. So, yeah.
0: And I, and I just do want to be kind of clear here that what is common is that it's that millennial age, then the last judgment. Right. Okay. And that's what both of the pre-millennials have in common, pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, and then the right. historic. I mean, good grief, we could go on for a long time, you know, trying to parse the different dispensational views. So, and again, folks, want to hear more? Let us know. But the next we're going to come to is, at least since the time of Augustine, the most common view and the one you're going to find in Lutheranism, that's amillennialism. Right. Now, that's not always been true. We do have some millennialists in the woodshed. But uh,
1: well, I mean, I mentioned Bangle earlier, and he was yeah. certainly a, um, millennialist.
0: Yeah. But but you know, we I don't want to name names here because we won't we won't be able to fit everything in. So because sure. I you know what I was good. I didn't even talk about name drop Darby. Didn't get into Schofield and his financiers. So I'm being I'm being a good boy. <laughs> so yeah, amillennialism. millennialism. Is that one you want to give us a rundown on that? Ah, millennialism literally means
1: it's kind of misleading. It means no millennium. Yeah, uh, but that's not really what what the position believes. It's a belief that the thousand year reign is a symbolic, symbolic one. Yeah. The idea that we are in the midst of that reign, that Jesus Christ at the ascension began to reign in power. And so we are in the thousand year reign. And so it tends to interpret of uh, the prophecies of Revelation and, and mostly of Revelation of Daniel as well, as being, like I said, largely descriptive of just a a generally kind of rough time that we're going to have while we're still in this world, while we await the second coming, at which Jesus then will come and eternity will begin. How would you add anything to that, or is that pretty? Yeah,
0: no, yeah, pretty straightforward. Basically, church ages the millennium, and we're in it now, waiting for that second coming. So the time after the resurrection of Jesus is essentially that symbolic millennium.
1: Yeah, this this whole discussion of millennialism almost seems like anticlimactic after our yeah. posting about dispensationalism.
0: So Right, but we do have one more wild card. So starting in the 17th century and 18th, um, <laughs> you do begin to see not quite a movement towards premillennialism and not necessarily a movement away from amillennialism, but you start to see rumblings or hear rumblings about a literal millennium again. Sure. So you, you can argue that some of the the Puritans might have been premillennial or, or leaned there. Jonathan Edwards talks about millennial ideas with new influence in his time. But we come to something that's very popular in the 19th century, and that is postmillennialism. Right. And that's that's a new term for a lot of our listeners. Right. Because it's just not that famous anymore.
1: All right. It's so, not very common at all, yeah.
0: Yeah. So what would uh, post-millennialism be? The optimist approach. Post-millennialism, I can't even
1: say this word today, <laughs> be described as the eschatology of hope, I think is a, a great way of describing it. It's basically the idea that the thousand years will begin at some undefined point. I'm not really sure how they're convinced how it actually begins. But then during the course of that thousand years things are going to get generally better for the for the church. This is kind of an onward and upward kind of approach, which is why it probably fit in so well with the 19th century. Yeah. But at the end of that thousand years, when the world has been fully evangelized when everything is going just great, then Jesus will come back and begin eternity.
0: Yeah. So yeah, you, you basically you have things getting better and better Christian influence growing and growing. And then when the world is ready, then Jesus returns. So it's, it's the opposite of this idea that everything becomes worse. Right. Now, I, I do think that, yeah, in the postmillennialist scheme, there is, you know, a judgment still comes, but again, that's after that great millennium and then, or the, the millennial reign. So that is really popular in the 19th century in America. Oddly enough, a time of great Uh, You know, optimism might not be the word, but great social movement or reform movements that we would say for good or ill, you know, like abolition or the social gospel or something like that. So you see it manifested in that there's this great hope. And then in the 19th century, there's a lot of millennial groups. So you have like the Millerites concerned about, you know, the rapture and stuff like that. But you also have groups that are very much about evangelism and, and Christianizing society. And those are the ones who really typify the post-millennial. The post-millennials today are going to be embodied in the Christian Reconstruction movement for the most part or or the theonomists because a key to theonomy or one of the the key tenets is that society is ordered around the precepts of the Bible. Right. So that God's law is is the law of the land. And so that's part of the post-millennial idea that... As the Great Commission goes out, society truly is Christianized. That might be off-putting to some of us. It might seem very foreign to some of us. But at the same time, it's a little bit refreshing, too, to see the Great <laughs> Commission as, a, as sort of a victory march. Right. You know, that the Holy Spirit's going to go into the world and the world's going to be converted. We don't want to
1: think of this as being, like, hopelessly naive or something like that or, like, no, not no, taking no, the Bible yes. seriously. Because they would still say that, yes, there is still Great Tribulation and prior to the beginning of that yeah. millennium there is you know still the great period of distress for the church
0: yeah and, and there's still sin in the world yeah yeah so and so what do we do with it you know we just you know take it for what it is because ultimately what kills the post millennialist movement is world war 1 right this great of optimism is brewing up the world is going to be christianized the social reformers or the social gospel and And everything we've seen the abolition of slavery we think in most of the world and we we're starting to see you know you know really great movements happening and we're getting child labor laws passed and surely surely this means post is correct and then the entire world goes to war or germany you know goes to war with the the world goes to war with germany i guess with germany yeah (laughs) and it was actually pretty close twice (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so the, the world war really does take some of the it, it takes the wind out of the sails of post millennialism, for the most part.
1: And maybe, maybe it's worth saying here, kind of as we're getting towards the end of this of this episode. I think even if we are espousing a more or less amillennialist position, as I tried to hint at earlier in the episode, we don't want to take that to mean that we don't care about the end times or that we don't have we shouldn't be have any real concern about that great and, and awful day when the Lord will return in glory. I mean, because it will be an important event. And so I don't think we want to look down on all these other approaches and say, oh, how stupid these people are, but rather we can learn something from them. Think yeah. about think about a premillennialist and his intense concern for how near the Lord's approach is. Do we have the same kind of concern? Or sure. think about a postmillennialist and his concern for the, the Great Commission. Do we have a similar concern? You see what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah, and yeah. All millennialism doesn't have to lead to apathy. A millennialism doesn't have to lead to apathy. There we go.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, and I think, unfortunately, we can fall into that apathy so quickly, and then just use that as a way of not talking about it all. But we should learn something from them, so that we can be ever more zealous for the task which is before us.
0: Very well said. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to check out more, we've got articles, more podcasts, lots of good stuff. WordFitlySpoken.org, Facebook.com slash WordFitly, or Twitter at WordFitly. Also, check out our discussion group, WordFitly Posting on Facebook. I'm Willie Grills, here as always with Zell and Heidi. God love you, and God bless.